Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, here along with producer extraordinaire, Brandon. Extraordinaire. You like that? We're really just reaching out there for bigger names. Yes. I think that's French. Oh, it is? Okay. <laughs> I think so. It sounds about How do you feel about that? If it's French, it must be uh, special, fancy. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to go You with are that. wearing your beret. Yeah, well, I, I bring that, and I have a bag of baguettes with me <laughs> as well, course. so it just happens to yeah, work out. So that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad I, we broke that down. That's good. Extraordinary. Well, you are, you are, and I'm glad to have you as, as my partner in this endeavor. And speaking of this endeavor, uh, I wouldn't even be here without Travis Frank. Uh, I, I cold emailed Travis Frank because I had an idea about getting into outdoors media for myself, and Travis was gracious enough to uh, sit down for lunch with me, which, as you'll hear in this interview, that's one of the things he does because somebody did that for him. Ron Shera did that for him, and now he does it for others. And as a result of his graciousness in meeting with me, now there's this podcast and we're working on some other projects that's, um, that's just, it's really great. He's a, just such a, really, he's been an, an incredible kind of guiding light to me in trying to get into this outdoors media industry. But here's an interesting deal when we had this lunch. He said to me at one point, I was telling him my story. We're at, at Leanne Chen that one day when we had lunch. This is, I don't know, a year and a half ago probably. And he says, wait, a pastor got divorced? How does that work? <laughs> and I was like, pretty much the way it works with everybody else. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, I think that same thought probably went across my brain. I mean, Is it left right? real fast. But yeah, it's like, I mean, I get it, but yeah. But I didn't see that coming. Yeah. <laughs> and now you, I mean, uh, as, as you'll hear when you listen to our conversation, divorce is part of his story too as a kid. And like... He went through a divorce. His parents got divorced when he was about the same age as my kids were when I got divorced. And um, so it was. it's interesting now seeing another layer of that right. comment that he made to me because I was a little taken aback. Like, well, I don't know, dude. It, it's not like I planned it. It's right. Just... You're, you, he, he actually does know of divorce and yeah. has existed within <laughs> yeah, his right, life. Right, 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 right. Um, but what an absolutely great guy who really opens up in this conversation about his story, his journey, his faith journey. It's been quite dramatic for him, um, which you'll hear about as, as we talk. And you'll hear some, uh, what it's like to be a big time fishing guide and then to get real sick of it. And to be the man when it comes to muskies. Yeah. I mean, that just, just hearing the numbers that he said blew my mind. Like, you, you, you're not supposed to get that in a lifetime, what he catches in a day. I know. It, that was unbelievable. That's unbelievable. You can see why he became so famous oh, as a musky fishing guide. Yeah. I mean, he, he must have been the absolute top of the field. So it's a lot of fun. I know you'll enjoy it. I really appreciate you listening. Uh, Travis is the host of three television shows, The Flush, Rooster Tales and Do North Outdoors. Um, I know you can watch The Flush um, on uh, Amazon Prime and YouTube if you don't have like the Outdoors channel or whatever. You can still watch that show and see him. He also does stories for Minnesota Bound, which is a 
very famous long-running outdoors television show here in the Twin Cities. I mean, in Minnesota. And he's also the host of the Flush Podcast. And you're the producer. I happen to be a producer, oh, so that. I can vouch that Travis is a really good guy. He's a good guy and a great host. So, you know, listen in on his podcast and check out his TV shows and find him online and uh, listen to our conversation, which is coming up right now on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, Travis, thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Tony. Uh, my first question for you is this, and this is a serious question. Okay. Is it possible for a bald guy to be a TV star? It's possible for a bald guy to be on TV. I don't know if I'd call a bald guy a TV star. I have noticed one thing about your TV appearances. You're almost always wearing a hat. So I'm wondering, is that the, is that the key? Well, I've for a grown bald up guy to get on TV. It's possible that I'm bald because I've always worn a hat. So maybe <laughs> okay. that's the reason. But I I've taken it off a few times and I I love the fact that I don't have to worry about my appearance. I could be fishing in the morning and I could fish till 2:30 and at 3 o'clock I'm ready for a wedding. I don't have to do my hair. This is so I true. never have to worry about And the money you I'm... save on shampoo. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I uh, I I would I took my youngest kid out to Oregon to duck hunt with my brother for a couple weeks yeah. and when we were out there my brother's also, you know, male pattern baldness, but he's kind of growing it out right now. So he's got like the ring and the little tuft on the top. Sure. Sure. And my son is like, "Dad, Uncle Andrew looks so much better than you cuz he has <laughs> hair. You got to So I went for 2 weeks without shaving my head and drove home and as soon as I walk in the door, my wife, Courtney's like, uh, yeah, no, no, <laughs> no, that's, I will, that's not going to fly around here. I will say though, that I have one person that wants to look just like me. My nephew, my sister says that he wants to be bald. He says, mama, I want to be, I want to have no hair like Travis. So there's at least one person out there that appreciates my look. And my kids, when I say, uh, whenever something about hair comes up and I go, I don't have any, they go, no dad, you've, you've got some on the side. <laughs> it's a on the side. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you look at like the presidential, like the Democratic uh, primary stuff is going on right now, and Joe Biden works so hard with so little. You know, he's had these hair implants, and mm. he was once quoted as saying that he was one full head of hair away from being the president of the United <laughs> States. <laughs> People invest a little bit too much in their looks, in their hair. Don't you think? Why oh, is that? Gosh. Why is that? That confidence lacking when people lose it. I don't understand it. That's know, one thing where I'm really, um, I mean, yeah, I do have a hat on a lot, so it lo probably looks like I'm covering it up, but I'm not like self-conscious of it. I doesn't, I don't lose my confidence if all of a sudden somebody knows that I don't have hair on my yeah, head. There's like half of the male population doesn't. And the I ones know. that don't have it are trying to grow it back and take <laughs> some from the back and put it on top. I just let it be. Cripes. We're all I the know, same. I know. I I am with you, man. I so anyway, you. you could be a TV star, Tony, because <laughs> we have the same Yeah, hairdo. we have. There's a few bald guys around here at Ron Share Productions. Yeah. Ron's not one of them no no he but works on that he, he works does. on that hard to keep that going and he's he he looks real good, he how, looks real good. <laughs> how long have you been here at ron share productions oh 12 years what'd you do before that uh, i was a fishing guide 
I started. That I started, was your gig. That was that like was, how you made money. That was how I made money. I started. So I grew up just obsessed with hunting and fishing. Obsessed with it. In a family where, that did it. Yeah, I had to, my grandpa's hunted, my uncles hunted, my Not, dad hunted and fished, okay, okay. and so I was around it a lot. But you more into it than them. More than probably anybody else I've ever met. Really? Yeah. Whereabouts and did you grow up? I grew up in West, just west of the uh, Twin Cities Metro. And okay. it, at the time, it was a really small town. And in our backyard, we had woods that went on for miles, woods oh, and cool. fields and all yeah. that. And we had deer yeah. that would come and eat out of our garden. And I was obsessed with learning about the animals. Obsessed. Really? Like I, my parents tell me stories. I would record all of the fishing shows on TV because <laughs> back then there was no DVR. Right. I would. Um, I wouldn't watch cartoons. I just would record these fishing shows and watch them over and over and over again because wow. I just wanted to learn. My um, Our babysitter would drop me off at the docks on the nearest lake and basically I'd fish all day and they'd pick me up. Which oh today they gosh. would probably, you know, get thrown into jail for, <laughs> yeah, exactly. for treating their, you know, like it would be... Guessing you didn't have a life jacket on, they just... Oh, just... No, actually, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't think I ever wore a life jacket there either, but... Can you imagine um, doing that? You have little kids. Can you imagine doing that? Just like right. dropping off your six-year-old with a fishing pole at a lake. Right. I would say I was probably eight, <laughs> seven or eight. Still. But, but so I actually, my, I remember my grandpa taught me how to clean fish because um, he said, if you're going to catch this damn many fish, you're going to learn how to yeah. clean them. And he yeah. was on me to figure out, you know, you, you messed up. You left a piece of meat on there. So I was very, it was very strict in doing everything uh -huh. the right way That's so i cool. learned from him which i appreciate obviously to this day but um so it was something that i can't explain it was in my blood and then once i got my driver's license i had a mode of transportation to get myself to the lake and the thing that started the guiding for me i mean obviously i was obsessed with fishing learning everything i could about it but at the time in minnesota the muskies became a big, uh, big, you know, uh, became a fish that was finally available. So mm -hmm. in the, in the mid eighties, the state started a stocking program and they stocked a lot of lakes in Minnesota. So the fish, you know, it takes, it takes a while before yeah. they, you know, really make an impact and they're catchable enough I mean, that you can target to, them. Tell a listener who doesn't know what a muskie is. It's a massive, yeah. prehistoric kind of fish. Ah, I mean, that's a little much. I mean, they've been created to be these monsters that they're not really, but I'm, they're... I'm reading, uh, I'm reading this new uh, history of the Lakota people. Yeah. And they are known to us as like the cowboy Indians mm -hmm. uh, who are out on the plains. Mm -hmm. But they weren't. They were pushed west in the 1600s. They were around Lake Malax. That was their sacred lake, and it was full of muskies in the That's 1600s. Nope, it was not. Really? They, they were. There was no muskies in that That's lake what that until. Book said. Well, there were big northern pike in that lake. Really? Yes. Um, unless somehow. They became extinct in the and 1900s were and were reintroduced. Which is but, possible. But they, they're stocked fish in the lake. So they okay. were introduced by the DNR. So in a roundabout way, people had this resource they've never known how to catch. You know, my grandpa taught me how to go fishing for walleyes and bass and crappies. My dad did the same, but he didn't have muskies to catch in these lakes in the central part of the state. Northern Minnesota, Canada, muskies exist. Muskie is, it's like a northern pike. It's a, they grow large. They've got teeth. They're and exciting. It's a thrill. You experience a musky encounter on the water. You don't even have to catch it. You'll never forget the experience. 
So it, when I was about 14, I saw on TV somebody catch one, and I was like, oh, that's what I need. I want one of that. And I had a buddy who was almost as sick about fishing as I was, and he said, let's do that. We want that. So we made it our mission for a year to figure out how to catch one. Wow. Read everything I could. Okay. Everyone turned me the wrong direction. Finally, we caught one on accident, and it was just doing exactly the opposite that all of the professionals said try Which this. Which is somehow, they call it what? The fish of a... Fish, fish of, of 10,000 10, casts. casts. Yeah. yeah, you get one, it's a fish of a lifetime. So I learned how to catch them, and I was catching five, ten a day to the wow. point where uh, back then we had those disposable cameras. Do you remember? Yeah, you, oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I um, had all these photos, and a guy that worked with my dad s- saw the pictures, and he goes do you think he would take me fishing if I paid him? <laughs> and so my dad came home and he goes, well, I've got a guy that I work with that wants to fish with you. Saw the photos. Would you take him? He wants to pay you 50 bucks. And I thought I had died. had gone to heaven. <laughs> and so I took him out fishing and that was my first guide trip. I was 16. I bought uh-huh. a boat with my, I had a lawn mowing business that I started when I was 12. Uh-huh. So I, you know, made some money and um, I came from a working family. So yeah. I, I'm thankful for that too, that they pushed that, those ethics into me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I had saved up enough money. My dad helped me out too, but I bought a used boat and uh, started guiding. I did that through high school. By the time I was in college, I had built it up to the point where I was able to quit my summer job and just guide full time in the summer. And then loved I, it or got sick of it? I mean, I, so like th- anything, mm-hmm. when, when you do something you love and suddenly it becomes your living, it can be challenging to maintain the inspiration. Yeah. The reality there, Tony, is that I grew to hate it probably more than anything else. Is that right? And that's being completely honest. Because I had turned something I love more than anything else into my career, I guess. I had to do it. I didn't get to do it when I wanted to. I was out there 50, 60 days in a row, sometimes morning and night. I'd sleep in the middle of the day for a few hours, take the next crew out. I learned about, I learned a lot though. I learned about running my own business. Um, I learned just how to manage things, expenses, all that stuff. I worked my tail off and didn't come away with hardly anything to show for it money-wise. And then I realized that people were kind of almost getting this experience for nothing. Really? You know, and... um, Because you weren't charging enough? I wasn't charging enough. So I doubled my rates. I figured if I take half the amount of people, I will make more money because I'll have half the expenses at the same income. Didn't lose a customer. Gained more. Gained more. They just kept coming. They wanted it. And it was this... I mean, I, I know fishing guides today that I took out 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh huh. Um, and, and so, where were you doing this? So Lake Minnetonka and Lake Waconia in central okay. Minnesota. Just those two. Yep, and Lake Mille Lacs. And Mille Lacs. So that's why I can speak to Lake Mille Lacs. So I guided up there as well. And um, There's, Is there a ton of muskie hunting on Mille Lacs? Yeah. There is. Yeah, some of the biggest fish in, in North America live in that lake. No kidding. Yeah, they have a, uh, they have forage called tulipy swimming oh, out yeah. there, uh-huh. and they grow real big because of that. Okay, now for... For uneducated listeners on the muskie, people don't ke- keep muskies mm. and eat them. Correct. I've never to this day kept one. So if somebody wants to mount a trophy muskie, they'll yep. take a picture of it, bring it to a taxidermist, and say, recreate this for me. Yep. Fortunately, Is it considered bad form to keep a muskie? Because some people must. 
Uh, it was, so in Minnesota right now, it has to be over 54 inches long to legally keep. Wow. There's okay. a very small percentage of fish in this entire state that qualify for that. It's gotcha. just, there might be one or two in some lakes. There might be 10. So in you've some never lakes. eaten muskie? Never tried it. Nope. Nope. But I can tell you, I've taken people out from every state in uh -huh. this country that wanted it on a bucket list. It's the freshwater tarpon. It's the king of freshwater. It's, it's the fish. ultimate yeah. game fish. And it's... Just something where it's a bucket list item for people. They would fly in from everywhere, different countries they would come here because yeah. we became a, a destination. Minnesota stocking program became so good that it became a destination for people living in different parts of the country. They say, you know, like if, if I wanted to go catch a sailfish, there's certain places you go to catch a sailfish, right? Mm -hmm. And if, if somebody wants to catch a muskie, they came here. And, and I became you. a guy that people wow, wanted to fish with for a while. Amazing. So it was pretty cool. Uh, and then that, I eventually took Ron Scherer out fishing one day uh, through a, a friend of a friend. Um, and we kind of sort of hit it off. And, and I, for people who don't know, Ron is not only the founder of this company that mm -hmm. where we're sitting right now, but he was a longtime columnist for the Star Tribune. Before that, he worked at other newspapers, outdoors writer, mm -hmm. who then left the newspaper, started a TV show that is beloved in Minnesota called Minnesota Bound. Still running today. Yeah. 25 a, plus years that show's been. It's a beloved TV show. Right. Well, before we get to that, back to your childhood, uh, did you grow up in like a religious family or church going family? Was that part of your uh, growing up years? Yeah. Uh, my, my family was, uh, we grew up in a Catholic church. Mm -hmm. So I went to, um, I went to, we had uh, confirmation classes on Wednesday First night. communion, First confirmation, communion, that whole deal. Did all of that. Uh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting part of my life, if I'm being honest. Um, yeah, let me hear. Tell me about that. Well, uh, gosh, I, my, my parents, we went to, um, we went to church growing up. My, both my grandparents, you know, their sides did the same exact that thing. That part too. of Minnesota is yeah. like w Waconia, Chaska, Chanhassen. There's a ton of what German Catholics out there. That was mm -hmm. a lot of that farmland was settled by German Catholics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and both, there's some big Catholic parishes out there. Yeah, and I came from a farm family. Both okay. my mom and dad were in Western Minnesota from farm families, uh -huh. and so yeah, I mean, German families, and you went to a Catholic school or Catholic church, I should say. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it was something that I I had always known. My dad grew up in Gaylord, Minnesota, mm -hmm. which was that's where Mike Max is from, right? Another Minnesota outdoorsy celebrity. Um. Gaylord was a German Lutheran town. Mm -hmm. Arlington, the next town east, was a German Catholic town. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So the next and next all, west of it, that is where uh -huh. my mom's from, Fairfax. Okay. And my dad, yeah, so you I know mean, the so area. So in Sibley County, my yeah. grandpa was the Ford dealer. Okay. And if you were Protestant in Sibley County, you bought a Ford in Gaylord. And if you were Catholic in Sibley County, you bought a Chevy at the dealership in Arlington that was owned by a Catholic. <laughs> wow. You didn't, I mean, you seriously. Didn't mix. It's like a Republican and Democrat today. Yeah, you mean, just don't, you don't even talk to each it's other. something else. Well, what did you grow up then? We grew up uh, Congregationalist. So that's that. there's a UCC church in Gaylord that my dad grew up at. And then my mom grew up in, uh, in Edina, Minnesota, going to a Congregationalist church. Yeah, so that's where I grew up. And that's the kind of church I worked at, too, when I was a pastor. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so grew up Catholic, mm -hmm. 
traditional, like fervently or not so fervently? Went every Sunday to Mass or yeah, not most, so much? Most of them. Um, but then when I was about 11 years old, my parents got divorced. Mm. And so that really, that changed everything. I bet. Yeah. And so it wasn't, it wasn't pretty at the time. And, and how, what, where did you live after that? Stayed with my dad. Really? Mm -hmm. Which is, I mean, my kids live with me, Mm -hmm. which is unusual now, but really unusual then 25, 30 years ago. Yeah. My dad fought really hard to keep us there. I did too. Yeah. And it was, it was tough. I, you know, he was forced to, he was forced to probably work a lot harder than he wished he than he would have wanted to. Um, he he sacrificed pretty much his own personal time and life for us because when he wasn't working, he would coach our our sports. You know, mm-hmm. I have an older sister, younger brother, I'm middle child of three. Um, he, in spite of everything, he was always there. My mom was too, but when you're 11 years old, you don't have the ability probably to think, you know, you blame somebody unrightfully, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of just, a lot of hurt there in our family. And it really drew, it drove me out of, we'd still go to church, but I didn't understand, I didn't grasp it. Okay. Um, I chose to, maybe this was to set something to do with the my parents' dynamics, um, did they both, sorry to interrupt, did, did they both keep going to the same parish? No. They went to different parishes. Yep. yep. Would, and then how, how often would you see your mom or spend the night with her or whatever? Um, it took a while. Really? I, I distinctly remember when there were times that she would come to pick us up that I would go run into the woods in our backyard. Because you I wanted to stay I didn't at your want dad's. To go. Didn't yeah. want to go with her. Yeah. Yep. And it, you know, it, it hurts me to know today what I must have put her through mm-hmm. to to say things like I I hate you why did you do this to us why you know because I just I felt ashamed of my family when I was a kid and sure. I didn't want people to know that my parents got divorced yeah you know um it really it really changed my I was I Basically, growing up in in my early years of school, I'm pretty sure I was a what would be called a teacher's pet mm. by the book, straight straight laced. Um, things changed then. I I don't know how that change happened, but I I definitely turned into more of the party guy. Mm. Um, I got drunk the first time when I was not even in high school yet. Wow. Yeah, going into high school, and then those high school years were were more uh, party years. And mm-hmm. so I remember going to my confirmation class drunk. Wow. I, I distinctly remember it, and I'm open to telling people about that because um, I guess I'm just open to telling people about my life. Yeah, and, and that's, what I went well, through. I appreciate you. Yeah. My, my own uh, youngest... We were listening to the, he's 15, but when I got divorced, he was four. So he's lived a decade of some pretty crappy stuff and a lot of custody fight and switching homes and whatever. And 
we were <laughs> I was playing for him the opening uh the the first episode of this podcast yeah where Brandon and I just kind of talk about me and my story a little bit and he's like turns it off in the car he's like dad why do you have to keep talking about the divorce i hate that it's so embarrassing right see like yeah he's a kid he's yeah he's, he's like i don't want that stigma on me and i just said i just have to keep saying like aiden man that's my story yeah that's a big part of who i am at age 51 is what i went through in my 40s man it was brutal i survived it and it it yeah. made me who i am so yeah. i'm sure your mom are your parents still alive? Yep. And what's it like now? What's your relationship like now with them? Oh, it's it's a lot better. It's it's um we'll have a lot of time. So I live only about a quarter mile from my sister. Uh-huh. I have three young kids. My sister has four young kids. We like to we like to get together. Cool. And everything that we do, we invite both of them over and they're they're always coming to all the events together. Mm. They definitely, um, they definitely are part of things. I'm sure you know we don't want them to miss any part of it. We want them to be in our lives, and they choose to be, and we're really so they get along. They well get enough along to be. Yep. yep. I'm assuming there's probably still hurt there. Um, yeah. You know, sure. forgiveness is a tough thing. Yeah. It's just a tough thing for some people, and we pray. My wife and I, um, our story, and it. So it seems like I really went off track. And I think I did. I mean, I remember, I remember vividly when I got to college, somebody talking about God. And I said, you know, I'm just, he's not for me. And I wrote, I wrote it off and I thought I'm going to just go my own path here. And I didn't go to church for many years. And, uh, I was probably in my mid twenties, and I thought I found my wife, and I thought I had things figured out. I was out of school, and my sister, who had gone through the same things that I did in life, sure. she, uh, you know, basically chose the same path. But then she, uh, somebody brought her to church, and it was a different church, and different circumstances in life. But she. Uh, had this personal relationship with God. And she was praying for me that I didn't know this at the time. Hmm. She was praying for me. You're in your 20s? Yeah, I'm, in my, I'm like 23, 25, uh-huh. somewhere in there, <clears throat> maybe 24. Um, but anyway, yeah, so she's praying for me. And I went through this really, really tough point in my life. You know, and I think a lot of people in their 20s probably try to oh, figure yeah. out, you know, you're on your own, you're oh, going yeah. through stuff. And Tony, I hit rock bottom. Yeah, my relationship ended. I took it. Um, I took it really bad, and I didn't have a foundation to then go back to. My sister had been praying for me, and so had her friends because they had all found God. They found hmm. Jesus, and it was a, just such a big change in their life. And um, and ironically, my wife today is one of those women that had been praying for me. And there was one rainy night that I'll never, ever forget. I was probably as broken as I could ever imagine a human being be for several reasons. And it was raining and my sister called and she said, how, how are you? And I just could hardly say how, 
how tough of a spot I was in. And she said, I just want to pray for you right now. Can I pray? And growing up, I prayed the rosary. I prayed the Our Fathers, the Hail Marys. You know, that's what we did. But she prayed a prayer from her heart. And it was the Holy Spirit moving in her. And she prayed. And I've never felt such a strong... um, I, I know for a fact it was the Holy Spirit moving in my life in a way that it had never done before. And um, it changed everything from that moment on. I broke down. I was in tears. And f- from that moment on, my life, uh, I chose to have that pers- personal relationship with God. And it's changed everything. That's intense, man. Very that's Very super intense. intense. I've, I've told my story in front of a lot of people before. Uh-huh. Um, and everybody has their, their own yeah. story, right? But I, I can tell you and I can tell others that God is real because of what he's done in my life. How do you, how did your parents react to you and your sister taking that more, a different kind of version of Christianity than what they were familiar with? <laughs> they said, well, you can go to that church, but you still have to go to uh, the Catholic church if you want to c- c- consider yourself, you know, have you having gone to church this weekend? Like you didn't really go, right? you know, because you didn't, <laughs> you didn't go take to ours. Eucharist at a Catholic church, Correct. so it doesn't count. Correct. And then yeah. are they still at that or have they softened? Well, on that? it's amazing. And I can... I'm forever grateful for my sister because yeah. of what she's done yeah. and the amount of people that she's impacted, the amount of lives she's changed. And so my mom is now remarried. Her husband is a lead singer at a church just like the one we go to. She goes all the time. Um, I started serving at our church. And what type of church is that that you go to? Um, I go to Westwood Community okay. Church. Okay, so it's that's evangelical. An, that's church. an evangelical yeah. church yep. that was planted by right. a mega church in the Twin Cities. That's a Baptist church. So yep. I mean, it might not be officially Baptist, mm-hmm. but it's at least its DNA is Baptist. Right. Uh-huh. I started l- reading the Bible. <laughs> I mean, which I, is another thing you don't do when you grow up Catholic. I never did. Right. I never did, and right. so I'm like, where does it say all of this stuff that I've been told my whole life? Yeah, it doesn't say any of this in this book. Instead, it says, you know, invite God into your heart and pray to God and and talk yeah. to Jesus and you know, and he, but Jesus in, tells in, you in, stories and teaches you. Right, right. In the Catholic Church, of course, they believe that you know, the teaching of the Catholic Church that has been developed and sophisticated over 2,000 years, I don't think any Catholic priest would say it's equal to the authority of the Bible, but it's darn close to equal. What do you say to that? And I'm just saying that, like, for those of us who grew up Protestant, that's the reason Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church, is he didn't think that the Catholic magisterium had anything near the weight that Scripture has. So he had this phrase, in Latin, the phrase is sola scriptura, Scripture alone. And that was a big part for Martin Luther in 1517, which the only reason you and I are not Catholic 
is because in 1517, after 1,500 years of there being only the Catholic Church, basically, except for the Eastern Orthodox Church, which started in 1054, but that, you know, very similar kind of deal with the magisterium teaching, Luther broke away at the same time, really, as the Enlightenment was, you know, was just starting. So that, this whole idea that you as an individual can read the Bible for yourself, yeah. dude, that was unheard of yeah. for the first 75% of Christian history. And, but now you and I, right, that, that was Luther's revolution, was like he, he translated the Bible into German and said to the German people, hey, here you go. You get to read it. It's not just in Latin for the priest to read anymore. Now you get to read it. Yeah. So that, you know, your parents were from that other other stream. I think even Catholics now, because Protestantism has been such a, I mean, it's been an incredible force, and there's probably nearly as many Protestants in the world as there are Catholics now. Um, Well, and I think... I think now, you know, it went from being religion to me yeah. to a relationship, yeah. and that's tangible for me. I, I, I mean, I've seen God in the outdoors is like my, my place, but, but that foundation, the Bible, is, is number one. Yeah. And that's something I didn't have until at that moment. Right. Yeah. Right. And so then, I mean, I started serving at church. I taught Sunday school, and turns out my now wife, she taught Sunday school. We'd hang out afterwards. I oh. fell in love. I pursued for like a couple of years before I finally convinced her. Really? Yeah. She was a tough kid. How come? We had, so we had mutual friends. Your, and, it's your hands always smelled like fish. Right? She's right. probably like, too. doesn't do it for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it does today. Heck, she was holding the fish this morning. We, yeah. Um, but... Yeah, we had mutual friends, and she just valued our friendship to the point where she didn't want to lose that. And I finally just told her, this is how... Everyone saw it. Everybody saw it, you know? (laughs) And all my friends knew there's nobody that compared to Sarah. So even if they would try to match me with, uh, with somebody else... And my buddies would say, nah, don't, don't bother. She's not Sarah. Because I just, I knew she was just this wonderful, godly, beautiful yeah. woman. And yeah. I just became, I knew the, the person she was. And then that was, she set a different standard for me that I had never seen before. And so we became really close friends. I'd try to uh, do sweet things for her, take her places. She thought, these are great things to do with friends. And finally, oh I got to the point where I told her how, how I felt. And um, she said, well, if we can't be friends, if we can't continue doing this, then you got to tell me. And so I tried, and I tried, and I finally said, no, I can't do this. I need, a, I need to step away right now because this is how I feel, and you don't, so I need to put this distance between us. And it was the distance. You called that her got bluff, her. man. <laughs> it was that distance. And I'm now I'm working at this company already. And I'm getting on an oh, airplane really? to fly out to the East Coast somewhere to go film a TV show. And all of a sudden I get this text. I don't want to not talk anymore. Oh. And I'm like, oh, she's mine. Got yeah. it. Set the hook. <laughs> Set the hook. hook. <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. Oh, so she had to, awesome. and I said, I'm sorry, you have to wait eleven days until I get back home. 
And I said, I'm turning my phone off right now. I'm going on a trip. (laughs) And so, yeah, now we got three kids and we're still trying to navigate life. Yeah. Um, And my, the center of it is still to this day, we we try our very darndest to keep God at the center. That's awesome. I, um, I had a prayer partner in college. We were like in the same Bible study. This guy and I were in the same Bible study and we would get together once a week and pray in the empty college chapel. And a lot of times we would be praying for our future wives, whoever they may be, you know, which I'm sure a lot of college guys do who are practicing their faith. And then he ended up marrying the girl I was in love with. (laughs) (laughs) No way. (laughs) See, that's foreign to me. It's true. And then they just got divorced two years ago. Oh my gosh. So, uh, see, that's, that's so foreign to me because I grew up praying, you know, the Our Father and the Hail Mary and I didn't, didn't have a clue what it was like to pray for those types of things. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. We prayed a ton for sure. Um, you said something there about, you know, finding your faith in the outdoors. And then you w- went on to say the Bible's more important to you than than that. Yeah. But tell me what that looks like for you, especially as someone who uh, has the outdoors as a profession. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your job to be Mr. Outdoors guy. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I've, I told you earlier that I came to hate fishing. Yeah. Um, I now have a better relationship with fishing again. <laughs> Praise God for that. Yeah. But um, it was just really getting everything in moderation uh. um, and trying to be more well-rounded in the outdoors, the pursuits that I love. And so sometimes when things are just, and, I, and I'm overwhelmed by life and kids and um job you know this is a job like we're yeah it's people say oh you get paid to go hunting and fishing well no i get paid to go tell stories about people that hunt and fish and sometimes i'm with them but at the end of the day i got to work with producer or uh, you know the the networks the uh sales you know commercial sales all that stuff we got to make sure graphics are in every show we got to make sure we got all the content everything lines mm-hmm. up there's it's like mm-hmm. a i'm like a job manager it, would be the role of a TV producer. They're just managing the editor, the cameraman, you know, setting everything up, doing all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I might spend a couple hours out in the field walking around and trying to kick a pheasant out of the grass, but that's such a small percentage of what yeah. we do. So yeah. it's a job. It really yeah, is. I've spent a, a bunch of time around this office in the last few months. And I mean, other than the fact that you guys are constantly wearing gear given to you by fishing and hunting companies. Yeah, I got to wrap a shirt, wrap a hat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pheasant, a lot, of, a lot of pheasants forever hats mm-hmm. around here. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you'd walk in here and think, like, this is an office where people are running a business. Mm hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, we we have to make a, a paycheck. Yeah. Right. We yeah. gotta take one home to provide for our families. So it's it is a business. It's just um, I take it. You know, my role in what I'm doing today is um, I'm hoping to. I mean, because sometimes I think like, why am I doing this? What the heck? Why mm-hmm. why don't I do something like, uh, you know, be a doctor or something that I can really help somebody's life? Like, God, why did you give me this? job you know why why do i know what a muskie is doing in august on the first cold front you know why why do i look at a piece of grass and say there's going to be a pheasant right in this little bush over here mm-hmm. you know and so that's how my brain works and 
man, I can't tell you the lives that um, we've been able to uh, affect in, in a positive way. And the outdoors is, is so critical for humans. Before we became this civilization that's all jammed into these buildings, we all lived out there, right? Uh, so when things are really, really stressful, I'm able to get back out. If I sit in a deer stand for a night, I'm just like rejuvenated again. Hmm. Um, I try not to bring the phone with, or if I just go fishing, sometimes I'll wake up early in the morning and hook on the boat and go out and just have that one-on-one. Uh, it's creation. I mean, it's getting away from some of the distractions. And for me, I, I probably, it brings, I mean, I think it brings me the closest to God when I'm out there. Obviously, you know, that book is, is the focal point um, in that, you know, the Holy Spirit within me, but things sure seem clear when I'm able to spend that time out there. Another thing I've noticed about you, and I wonder if you can reflect on this, is you see story. I mean, you're, you, you've helped me with some scripts, and you um, obviously spend a lot of time putting together stories, figuring mm-hmm. out how to tell stories, especially in television. Now you're doing it in podcasting too. Um, what do you think that's about? Like what what animates you when it comes to telling a person's story? Well, I'm still learning, if I'm being honest. I've got a long way to go. That's how I feel about it. Some Some people might enjoy a story, and I've never really looked at any of them and thought they were complete. On my end, um, that's something that I struggle with and I have to work on. But everybody has a story. You've got one. I've got one. Brandon's sitting over here. He's got a story. And if you start asking questions, you learn about somebody. And sometimes they've gone through something that could possibly affect or inspire another person. And when I start digging into that, um, sometimes it's just somebody that does something really cool. You know, and I'm intrigued by it and I start asking questions and there's a visual aspect that we have to get with TV. We have to be able to see that some, you know, the might've been the coolest hunt you've ever been on the greatest story, adventure, whatever, but you already did that. That's already done. The grizzly bear already ran across the mountain. I can't (laughs) fake that, you know, like, great. I'm glad you got to experience it. That would be a good story in a newspaper or in a magazine, but we make television and we have to see things with the camera because otherwise people will change the channel. Um, so I'm looking for stories that I hope will make a difference in somebody else's life. And I think that's why I, I, I feel like that's why I'm doing this job right now. Because, I mean, I've met some people that have gone through hell and they push through it and this is their passion. This is their number one passion and this got them through. Or, um, you know, we, we recently... I recently had a, a, a woman reach out and say, I just want to let you know, my husband and I were watching your show and you told a story about somebody struggling with cancer. That person explained what they were going through. My husband had the same symptoms and never knew what was happening to him. He went to the doctor, told the doctor what he thinks it is because he saw it on your show and found out that he had cancer and they maybe, maybe caught it in time. So thank Thank you for sharing your story. That's, or you go to a, intense. you know, somebody who has gone through 
something they'd never dreamed would happen. They lost their ability to walk and they loved the outdoors. They loved to go fishing and they got it ripped away from them because of a seizure or something right. that happened. And yeah. now he's, he's in a wheelchair and he can't, um, he can't walk, but he can still fish if he can get there. So he's figured out his own way to get there. And that's the kind of story, that's the kind of person where I say, I want, I want other people to know that you are, you're kicking butt out there because you've got the drive. So if somebody thinks that things are bad for them, maybe they see your story and say, I still have my legs and I yeah. can still go do this and I can still do something. So I, I try to find, um, try to find stories that hopefully will inspire people. Do you find that the television, I, you know, I come at this as a writer mainly. Do you find the television as a medium that requires you to make compromises or to, uh, you know, is it, in, it, is it in some way a dirtier medium for storytelling than writing just because of what you said? Like you always have to show it. You can't just talk about it. Yeah. Uh, try not to, um, yeah, I mean, that's in our, Can you make in the TV media with integrity without, yeah without manipulating things or mm -hmm. saying, well, they didn't actually say this and then this. Right. They said this and then about 20 other things and then this, but we're going to make it look like mm -hmm. they said this, then this, because mm -hmm. it's more, uh, it has emotion, more emotional punch. M yes and no. So you've got in a general TV show, let's just say it's a half hour program, that it boils down to 22 minutes of content. Um, and so between each commercial break, you're looking at four to six minutes of time. So sometimes you, I'm interviewing people just like yeah. you're doing me right now. And I start asking about their story and they might start with something that explains what, what happened. I might then sum up the next five minutes that they tell me in one or two sentences. In a voiceover. Yep. And then bring in how they finished it and show that that impact that that's that they've had um my goal always is to not change what they i'm not taking them out of context i don't ever want to take them out of context as best as i possibly can and still tell their story as accurately as possible uh you know and in outdoor television you know if if it takes a guy fake setting the hook so that you've got a, a like a visual get me to the point where the guy's actually battling a fish, but you know, and sometimes guys will do that. Cause the cameraman got them pulling the fish out of the water, but not miss the shot of them setting the hook. Yeah. Like so we're, in the, we're out there in the, on the lake for 13 hours yeah. and he happens to be filming a bald Eagle that's flying and the guy sets the hook and he's like, crap, I missed that. So he's not changing what really happened because the guy did have to set the hook. Right, right. He's just getting a camera angle to get him to that point. Otherwise, yeah. you'd be going, you know, like you wouldn't be able to connect all of those moving pieces very well. We try not to do uh, fake, you know, fake things. Like I have personally been on shoots where guys like, hey, um, I... I can put some fish in a cooler if you want, and then we can, iPad, you know, yeah. uh, we can just have them ready. I can hook them, let them swim down, we'll reel them up. And I was like, yeah, um, no, never. 
That's not an option. How about pen raised birds versus wild birds great. on a pheasant hunt? Yeah, great question. That's happened to me as well. I've I been, bet. I've had to set up with this guy, and I knew him, and uh, and we had set up the details, and he had a buddy, and this was, you know, the story was about this land that's been transformed into this wildlife paradise. He's got this dog that is going to be um, coming with. That's, you know, it's kind of like the final season. And that's really what the story was about. Getting a bird or two to flush would have been great, but my focus was not on shooting a limit of pheasants. And this was, uh, you know, and he and he mentioned, he goes, do you want to, uh, I can put a couple out. I'm like, what do you mean put a couple out? He's like, I can get some pheasants, you know, put a couple out, just make sure we got some birds for the camera to see. And I'm like, oh, no, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. And uh, so that was it. You know, I didn't think anything of it. Well, we get there, and this is a couple weeks later, and, you know, we get out to the spot, and the first bird got up, and I'm thinking, what? That thing, nice, let's see it. And shoved it in his pouch really quick. But, you know, a pen-raised bird, it's got the notch in the, yeah. in the beaks. Because they tell. put blinders they on. They put blinders so on. So they don't peck each other to death in the pen. That's right. So, and I said, whoa. What? Look at that. What's up with that? And he's like, oh, uh, the, the neighbors, sometimes they let some go. Must have just come in from here. Uh, must have just, you know, flew Flown over or something. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, huh. All of a sudden, the dog catches the next one. <laughs> and I'm Which thinking, to people who aren't pheasant hunters. Yeah. But dogs, my dog will maybe catch one or two wild hens in a season. If you're hunting a heart. You know, I mean, it's but not I've common. never had a dog catch a rooster. Yeah. They're a, a, wild, a wild rooster. Yeah, wild rooster is <clears throat> very elusive. They're yeah. not, they don't get up slowly. They're, you know, right. they're... They're not big and fat in the fall no, there. No, no. So when we walked this yeah. piece of property, we ended up flushing six roosters, not a single hen. That's weird yeah. because there should be both. They all got up very foolishly right at our feet. It was obvious that that went down that way. Um... And I could tell that they all had the little notch, and I could just tell that it was fishy, and that that uh, content that we filmed that day is never seen. Is that right? Broadcast. That's good for you. <laughs> yeah. Did it did it damage your relationship with that guy? Uh, it's an interesting one where it was never never talked about. Never talked about. And it he yet. never said, "How come my thing? Yeah. I never got on TV." Who never reached out? He must have known why. I have to assume. Yeah. Um, it was it, it was unfortunate that it went that way because yeah, there was yeah. no need for that. That wasn't the story. And had he not driven a vehicle out there to drop those birds off prior to us arriving that morning, there might have been a handful of birds there that he didn't spook away with the vehicle, and it could have right, happened the way right. it was meant to be. And yeah. So I I definitely uh, before every every shoot that I go on, I just pray that God would just help me to tell this person's story, mm-hmm. um, keep everybody safe. Um, and just, you know, watch over it and stuff. And so the next day, our other plans went so much better than I ever could have imagined that we ended up getting way more content that we needed. And it's ran, you know, in a full entire half hour episode, um, seen by hundreds of thousands of people. And it's, and it's, and everything about it was wild, fair chase, um, documenting people with a passion for it, and we did it the right way. Yeah, yeah. Well, ethics. I, I, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk about ethics in in the hunting world. I'm less familiar with the fishing world, but I'm sure it's the same. 
because a lot of what you do will never i mean you you could poach animals and never get caught and you could you know go up, people could put out pen raised birds and never no one would ever know it and so good for you i mean that's i think there there's a way to maintain in integrity in hunting and fishing but it's it's like every little thing like that happens you got to be like nope i'm just not in I, this, that's not how i roll in this industry though it's tough because a lot of people believe that their their show relies on the catch or the kill at the end yeah. the the getting that big animal otherwise they don't have a show and so one thing Ron Shira did many, many years ago um, was he started telling stories about people. And he said, that's not about the fish. If you get one, that's great. But at the end of the day, I want to come home with a story regardless of the catch. Yeah, and yeah. so he tells stories. He's a storyteller. And so I've always tried to just, um, and ironically, in 12 years, I've never, <laughs> besides taking Ron and his daughter out musky fishing for a segment, I've never filmed with Ron before. He and oh, yeah? I don't, yeah, we're both producers, so we don't have multiple producers in the field. Right. And so he goes to get his stories, I go to get mine. Um, so. Well, okay, last, last question for you. Why did he take a chance on you? You took him out musky fishing, you mm-hmm. kind of, and then how did you get from, you know, uh, a very famous outdoors journalist mm-hmm. as your client? Yeah, it was. How did you get? from there to suddenly your producer at his television company. It's an interesting journey for sure. So I took him fishing in the fall and we had a nice time out there. Um, and then that winter in my off season, I just sent an email to, you know, to his email and they said, I'd like to, can I buy you lunch? I just want to talk to you about how you got where you got. Yeah. And so I, he said, I Lian don't Chin? Did you go to Lian Chin? <laughs> no, there was another it. very famous lunch that we can talk about yeah. that happened there. So he didn't have the time to do that, but uh, <laughs> he responded. He said, can you write? And I said, well, actually, I think I can. And part of my business plan, however many years ago, back in college, um, Back before then, actually, I had a friend who started a blog, a fishing blog. Oh. This was before blogs were, you know, yeah, yeah, billions yeah. of blogs. Yeah. And so he wrote stories about, he would type up, you know, here's what I caught today. Here's what I did today. Well, his sister then created a blog for me and for my guide service. So I was taking everybody that I took fishing. I, I had their photos. I would wow. post them to the, the blog. I would write a story about our morning or our afternoon. Oh my I'd gosh. send them an email. Here's a link to your story and here's the, here are the photos. And I could track. I could track. Every time I'd send out an email, they would send 20 of their buddies that, that link. Like, hey, get, check it out. Yeah. And they could see what they caught today. They could see what the guys caught yesterday, the day before that, the day before that. And they're like, Holy cow, I want to get one of those. And the fishing was good. Business became really good for every trip. I got three more based on that. Wow. Um, it was crazy. So anyway, I was writing yeah. every day about yeah. something that I yeah. really cared about, what I was passionate about. And I said, well, yeah, Ron, I think I can write. Here's a few examples of what I've been writing about. And he said, all right, well, I just hired a president. Why don't you uh, talk with, with Mitch? And so I actually donated a fishing trip to... Um, a Pheasants Forever banquet, uh-huh. and Mitch happened to be there, and Mitch goes, hey, I hear I, I'm supposed to meet you. And so we sat at the table. The next day, I came into Ron's office, and I started uh, part-time. He, 
basically that week I got hired. Wow. I started that week and I did some writing um, and then selling, advertising. No kidding. Yeah. So I, I sold spots for his radio show um, and then helped with Minnesota Bound. And then turns out I learned how to, you know, create websites and do all this stuff. Well, so yeah, in yeah. my journey, then eventually... I raised my hand when an opportunity came up to help produce a show. There's a new show concept that came into our company. So I did that. That led to blah, 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 more things. And mm-hmm. so today I, I produce and host three of our shows, The Flush, Rooster Tales, Do North Outdoors, and then I produce stories for Minnesota Bound as well. And... Um, Talk with people like you. Well, I appreciate you took a chance on me having having lunch on a yeah. out of the blue yeah. email. So because I appreciate because that. I reached out and I did that lunch, um, or I wanted to do lunch. I've been in a position where um, I've had dozens of people reach out to me for mm-hmm. the same thing, and I I know what it was like to have reached out to somebody and ask. Yeah. And so when people reach out to me, I make it a point then to make sure that I at least sit down and have lunch. But I do tell them sometimes that I, when they say, I want to be a fishing guide so bad, and here's what oh, I'm going to do. Yeah. And I say, you know what? Maybe that's the right thing for you, but I share with them that I grew to despise it because it was what I loved. And when you're doing something like that, that you love so much, and you put expectations on it and money on it, people are paying you. So they yeah. they show up and there's expectations. And you want to deliver and there's pressure and suddenly you can't control a wild animal or a fish, you know, and it might change the way you feel about it. So if you love something, work really hard so that you have time to go do what you really love to do. I know a lot of preachers who are in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Got into it because they loved it. And by the end of their careers, they're just completely fried out on it, you know, the whole deal. So it is hard to maintain that balance. But you seem to be doing it. Trying. Yeah. Trying. Boy. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing my best. I mean, good. There's times where I need to just pump the brakes a little bit too and yeah. try to reset. Well, thanks for coming on and I encourage everybody to tune in. You're a podcast host now. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're doing this together. Kind of going. Of. Yeah. You like it's, it? Well, it's another opportunity to tell stories, yeah. right? Yeah. So, when we're producing TV shows, we sit down with people and might talk to them for a half hour, but ultimately I only use a couple four, four minutes yeah a couple yeah. minutes of what they talk about now we can really get into their story and so there's a lot a lot of stories out there cool yeah well thanks really appreciate it thanks for the time 